You're listening to Policy Speaking. I'm your host, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum, and thank you for tuning in. Almost a year ago, PPF had the privilege of hosting the first public conversation between Chief Terry Paul and John Risley on the sale of Clearwater Seafood based in Nova Scotia. Although this was a part of our Atlantic dinner and awards, more than 700 people from coast to coast joined us to hear how this deal came together and what it means. I was struck listening to Clearwater co-founder John Risley saying how he could have got more money from a hedge fund, but that he wanted his company in long-term hands. And I was even more struck when Chief Paul told us that whereas for the best of companies, long-term might be 30 years, for his people, long-term is forever. So there is something right there different about Indigenous ownership. Today, we'll probe further into a trend that is about hope and amassing the capacity for a future that really puts the meat on the bones of sovereignty for Indigenous peoples. We'll be joined in a short while by Alicia Dubois, founder of Nish Synergies Advisor Group, and Jeff Sear, co-founder and managing partner of Raven Capital. I'm looking forward to that conversation, but first, I'm also looking forward to welcoming PPF Media Editor Katie Davey to the microphone for a little of our weekly policy back and forth. Katie, hi. Hi, Ed. It's a big week today and kind of PPF celebrations. You know, we're recording this earlier in the week, but on the 26th of January, it's the fifth anniversary of The Shattered Mirror, which you were, of course, very heavily involved in. So let's start there. Wow, five years. It's interesting. That was one of the first projects that uh, we took on after I joined uh, the Public Policy Forum in 2016. And it was an influential one, which is uh, good. We did a rather comprehensive diagnostic of the decline of the news media sector. We asked ourselves three questions. You know, does this decline, and particularly the decline in, uh, in revenues and a number of journalists, therefore, on the ground, does this decline spell trouble for our democratic uh, system and democratic health? If so, is uh, our new digital forms of communicating plugging that gap? If not, what could or should public policy do in a manner that would have the lightest touch possible and the most impact? But, you know, we're very cognizant that we're talking about government in a democracy and the, you know, sanctity of the free speech principle. So that, you know, always figured deeply into what we recommended. And we're happy to see um, some of what we recommended has been implemented over these past uh, five years. We think without, you always have to be on guard that you're not putting too much power in the hands, too much influence in the powers of government and for that matter of large organizations. But we think so far the balance hasn't been bad given the urgency. I'd rather see no government involvement, but I'd also rather see a news media that has the means to report on uh, things going on in this country and in its communities. I think, you know, next week we'll be doing an entire podcast on the Shattered Mirror, so we won't get too far into the weeds on this. But, you know, I think two things are abundantly clear to me and kind of as you raise that. One is you know, we can spend our time philosophizing over what it is we want our kind of news media system to look like in Canada while local journalism dies around us. Or to your point, we can we can do both at the same time and provide solutions that, that may, 
you know, bridge the gap. And I think that's for me something that's that's very important. You know, bridging the gap and providing practical solutions is incredibly important. At the same time, just five years ago, the media system looked dramatically different than it does today. Some of the things that we're talking about right now are both local journalism and what what the solutions are, what what some lifelines are there. And also how, to your point, how we also protect the system from interference from big business and from big tech specifically. So things have changed quite a bit in in just five years. Well, you know, I think there's two things that, a couple of things that that have changed. And, you know, the first thing is just a glimmer on the horizon. But when you talk about, you know, uh, filling the gap and plugging the gap, I hope it's a gap. And we are seeing, you know, some green shoots of innovation and, you know, digital-based media. It's important, of course, that that media have journalists who go out and, you know, kind of patrol uh, the highways and byways of, uh, of information at city councils and at school boards and at the local sports arena and all the things that allow communities to inform themselves and to know each other for community purposes, because uh, this is critical, essential service. So we're seeing some green shoots, not enough, but I certainly hope we can give uh, those trend lines uh, a lift. The other thing that we're seeing that that's different is we are seeing the large platform companies, particularly Google and Facebook, making arrangements based on, you know, I think an apprehension that Canada will adopt an Australian model, which is a big thing to get into, but essentially it's uh, paying for the content that, that they display. And the Canadian government has said this will happen. So they've kind of gotten in front of a bit and done these ad hoc one-on-one arrangements with many media companies. And, you know, that's good in the sense that there's a transfer of money from the distributor back to the producer. But it also is very opaque and it uh, and it puts a lot of uh, yet another power into the hands of, uh, of these large multinational, you know, digital companies in that. Our news gatherers, uh, therefore, could become more reliant and potentially too reliant on that. The big thing on, on that point exactly is, as you say, the kind of opacity of these agreements. It's very difficult to analyze, you know, and decide and, and make suggestions on public policy when you actually don't know what the rules of the game are and what has been agreed on and what the conversations are happening kind of behind closed doors with and between I mean, whether it's Facebook and Google and news organizations. So just from, again, just from the public domain, it's important to understand these agreements in order to actually make decisions and solutions and suggestions on improving them. So I think that'll be a point to see. I think, you know, to to that point as well, or yeah, jump in. I just wanted to say, you know, that your point's very well taken. of much of this because the internet is supposed to be open and free and that's in spirit and uh, sharing and open information and I think everybody would be better served if we understood where money was flowing and where information was was flowing without stifling the creativity of private enterprise of course. Yeah and, and I was just also going to go to the internet myself because you know again a shift that's happened it's not been ongoing, but it's definitely become more pervasive in the last five years is kind of what is taking place in the internet domain, especially around online harms, dis- and misinformation, and just the kind of rapid spread of 
of vile and and hate online. And, and that's something that PPF is also concerning itself with quite a lot these days through our Commission on Democratic Expression and and the Citizens Assembly on Democratic Expression, which just released its year two report uh, just last week. And, and the commission, as I understand, is a few months out, but, but you've been involved in those conversations. So perhaps just as we wrap up, you can kind of talk about where, where the commission is going on, again, on kind of guardrails on the internet. Just thinking that in a historic sense, a big, big historic sense, that I think that it was something like 70 years after the printing press got going that its most high-impact moment, perhaps, which was Martin Luther and his theses being nailed to the uh, frame of the, uh, the door frame of, of his church that, you know, sparks the Protestant Reformation. So 70 years passed. You know, the internet uh, uh, started in the 1960s as the ARPANET. The uh, World Wide Web came around 1990. I think we're hitting the maturation point where we just need to need to get a grip on this. And obviously, you know, this has been a, an enormous social and economic revolution, much of it good. And the parts of it that, you know, that work against social cohesion or work against uh, informed societies, you know, those are things that we're just going to have to correct for. Uh, this will be my my one and only TV recommendation, <laughs> but uh, there's a show on Amazon Prime called the Great, and it's about Catherine the Great. And in the first season, there's a whole arc about the printing press. <laughs> it's quite an enjoyable show if uh, people want to kind of see. And it's exactly that. The the spread just becomes crazy, but it's a it's an enjoyable show. Ah. So we'll wrap it up there. <laughs> Gonna have to watch that. Thank you. And thank you for uh, this part of the conversation. I have mentioned that we'll be uh, talking about Indigenous ownership in a, in a few moments. But first, let me um, recognize our sponsor of Policy Speaking. COVID-19 pandemic demonstrated just how important strong and resilient healthcare is to all Canadians. And as well, how important science and scientific discovery and scientific inquiry is. The Public Policy Forum thinks uh, of itself as the think tank about tomorrow, which is why we are keen to touch on timely issues of, of relevance to Canadians. Our podcast sponsor, Johnson & Johnson, also knows how critical it is to provide strong healthcare services to Canadians and to be there for scientific inquiry. And we thank them for their support of Policy Speaking. With that, I'm pleased to introduce our guest tonight. Now, I am pleased to introduce our guest today. Jeff Sear is of Métis and Scent and hails from the White House Plains area of southern Manitoba. For nearly 25 years, he has provided strategic leadership for Indigenous, not-for-profit, and government organizations. Recently, he was Vice President of the Indigenous Innovation Initiative at Grand Challenges Canada, a sessional lecturer at Carleton University in Public Policy, and a guest lecturer at Oxford University in Social Finance. Jeff co-founded Raven Indigenous Capital Partners, North America's only Indigenous-led and owned venture capital firm in 2018, and established the Raven Indigenous Impact Foundation. And also with us is Alicia Dubois, a proud Indigenous professional who earned a Bachelor of Science with distinction from the University of Lethbridge and a law degree from the University of Toronto. Alicia is the founder of Nish Synergies Advisory Group, and previously she was CEO of Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, and she was also on CIBC's executive team, where she developed and implemented 
the bank's indigenous market strategy and framework. So I welcome you both to Policy Speaking. Delighted to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Okay, so about a year ago, there was a a very high-profile deal that gained a lot of attention in Canada when the Mi'kmaq, various Mi'kmaq First Nations, purchased 50% indigenous ownership in Clearwater Seafoods. How important was that as a, as a watershed for the kind of trends that we're seeing? This sort of, you know, I don't know, is it a sea change or is it a small evolution that we're seeing? Sure, I'll go first. Is it a sea change? Yeah. You know, minus the pun. Uh, I think... It is a. Um, it reflects an important turning point in the evolution of the indigenous economy and the capacity of nations and businesses to exercise what they feel is important from an indigenous point of view. So, taking control of a much disputed fishery or, or part of that supply chain uh, management. I think it's a really important from a sort of Indigenous sovereignty in the context of the expression of Indigenous enterprise in Canada. So in that sense, it's a watershed. I mean, Indigenous people, only 15%, 51% of a company is not new. But in this context, because what it represents in the Atlantic, I think it is an important signal. I agree. I think that the interesting aspect of this is actually the context with which the partnership was developed. And it is there has been tensions in the Atlantic region between the Mi'kmaq and the mainstream fishers. And so, you know, this is a real statement. I think another really interesting example of significant ownership is with Wate Power and Fortis. So there's another example where Indigenous communities have come together to build and create a company that then becomes 51% owner of a very significant asset. Now, Wate Power is, um, is in development. So it's about 1,500 kilometers of new wires and about 300 kilometers of a refurb in order for that wire system to connect to the Ontario grid. But it's going to bring electricity to, I think, about 17 to 20 First Nations for the first time ever that had always been served by diesel. And it's also a situation where Wate being the indigenous owned company owns 51% of that asset at the end of the day. And I understand that there's an agreement that after 25 years, Wate will have the option to, to be 100% owner of that asset. So we can see these very large projects are starting to bubble up and and that's very promising because as Jeff says it's about indigenous sovereignty and it's about independence and the ability to really realize on their right to self-determination whatever that means for them like each of those communities because it will be unique. Why is this um, building now and Jeff implied in his first answer there's you know been indigenous ownership for a long time but there seems to be a real growth occurring. Is this tied in with larger reconciliation trends? You know, you know what is going on right now? I'll, I'll go back to you, Jeff. Really, this is my perspective and only based on sort of the touch points that I have within the economy in Canada. I don't know if it's so based, so much based on reconciliation, to be honest. I mean, Truth and Reconciliation Report came out in 2015. We understood that was going on. There was a call to action about business and, and taking responsibility and action underneath uh, the TRC's report. 
And some of that has happened. But this, I think, has been going on much longer. If we were to look at trend lines, you know, you see the emergence of indigenous businesses, straight up indigenous businesses for quite some time. I would say 1950s, 1960s, you start getting, you know, small mom and pop businesses. The nations start to get into natural resource and energy plays and they start building out their capacity in casinos and hotels and that sort of thing kind of comes on stream what I would call kind of first wave business development. But concomitant with that, I think there's two things that happen. One is a bunch of Indigenous professionals emerged, went through the university system, did extremely well, started getting placed both within and outside of government and into private enterprises, started to build over the last 30 to 40 years this capacity. That led to second and third wave businesses that are no longer directly connected to just natural resource extraction and energy production. They're connected to a whole bunch of things. And out of that then comes innovation. So now you have a class of young Indigenous people who are just innovating, doing really groovy things, playing part of the tech economy and other parts of the economy, which I think... So, so you're seeing the evolution over a broad period of time of Indigenous people re-expressing themselves. You can call that reconciliation, but I don't think that's at the heart of it necessarily. Alicia, why don't you tell us, you know, particularly from your perspective as uh, on the capital side, you know, finding capital for, for these things, has something changed that helps um, the development and uh, of Indigenous businesses now? Well, I think that there's there's a lot of interesting movements afoot. So, you know, we could look at reconciliation and then see that you have governments that are more willing to participate and support Indigenous access to capital that allows them to engage in larger projects. There's also the international pressure for ESG. And in the Canadian context, that really increases the necessity for strong partnerships. Now, ESG is not the thing that started that. We had case law developing over the last 25 years that gave rise to the need for consultation, but that came through in so many different forms, some very genuine efforts to consult with communities and others not so much. And so from that, we saw this beginning point. First, it was impact benefit agreements and the real old impact benefit agreements were really just like, how do we pay you off so that we can do what we want on this land? And then they've evolved. So they're much more effective now. They encourage active engagement, right? I, I refer to it as not passenger seat engagement in in the economy or region that they're working in. And now we know from impact benefit agreements, there's a role perhaps for some of that to play. But now we see other much more interesting opportunities to engage. And what I love about this is that we're seeing more consortiums of Indigenous communities, like where you see regional economic development being driven and if you look at the announcement of the AIOC around the Northern Courier Pipeline, that included a number of communities, and some of them did not have the business acumen equal to others. And so there was a willingness on all parties to wait for those that had not participated in partnerships like this to sort of build that acumen and to get the advice they needed to in order to be meaningful partners. And there was a need to be patient and, and everybody was willing to. So there's an interesting, I mean, there's still the pace of business, but there's also an interest interesting understanding that 
that there is a need to be sort of bringing people along so that they do have a chance to operate in the economy. If you want to get back so in Jeff here. Jeff raises hand. <laughs> yeah, I did. Just I want to make a, not clarify a comment, but maybe add something to what I had said before and, and Alicia's comment brought it up is, you know, it's not that reconciliation is not playing a role, though. It is playing a role but it's much more current in, in context. But what it is doing is, I think, specifically with large businesses and with governments, it's pushing them to you know, create more facilitative vehicles for Indigenous people to participate in the economy broadly and to be a, maybe deal with some of the inherent systemic racism that goes around the financial system and other things, to start looking at deals a little bit differently, start looking at consortiums, as we said, and partnerships differently, uh, and the role that Indigenous people play beyond the role of social license. Like, it, it's actually much more of an active economy on its own and untapped to some degree. Right, right. I will say with the balance of probabilities in some ways uh, is shifting from exclusionary to hopefully inclusionary. And I think that's important to note. I think maybe we should just take a second to explore what is an Indigenous business? What is Indigenous ownership even? Is this a matter of having an equity position by Indigenous peoples or organizations? Is this a matter of having majority equity position? Is this go beyond that? Does it go into a different form of values or, or way of imagining business? Of you know, One thing I was very struck by in talking uh, last year to Chief Terry Paul around the Clearwater deal is for him, long-term wasn't 30 years, he said. Long-term was forever. So was there a patient capital kind of aspect? Just walk me through, let's start at least, just, you know, what is in that box called Indigenous ownership for you? Well, I mean, I think technically speaking, it gets down to ownership and also like active engagement in the corporation. I, I mean, I think we've all heard of the instances where there have been Indigenous companies um, and really what's happening is, you know, one of many co-founders or owners is Indigenous but has not actually been sort of actively engaged in the enterprise. So that would not be Indigenous business. I think that most of us would agree now that that does not fit the bill. When I think about Indigenous businesses, I think about, you know, sort of the, the same synopsis that and summary that Jeff provided. And, and it's about the active engagement in the business. It's about application of traditional thought processes and values and and how that influences the types of partnerships that that business creates and the way that they serve the community around them, the way they treat their employees. I mean, there's so many interesting components these days that are unique to Indigenous businesses. And when I think about an Indigenous business, I think about all of those things. Jeff, is there a comparative advantage in that? Yeah, yeah, I believe there is. But let me back it up a little bit, because I think my understanding, or at least how we work at Raven Capital, which is this sort of patient, flexible capital approach, why would we even bother to do that? In this? How would we be different than any other capital provider? And one of the ways that comes forward, and I think it somewhat answers your question, is Indigenous businesses, you know, haven't had a great time accessing capital over the last 40, 50 years. It's been a, a tough road. There's not a lot of collateralized capital, collateralized objects in community or housing that would normally be used, you know, to, to access capital. And it's been difficult, I think. But when we look at an, an Indigenous businesses, as Alicia said, you know, we look at 
not only ownership, because you can have indigenous people own a business and the business is not particularly indigenous in how it acts and it, its mission and, and what it does. But there's a whole raft of indigenous businesses that are indigenous owned partially or in a majority but also have a significant amount of Indigenous employees, including senior management team, and the intended beneficiaries of that business. What its intentionality is, is really important. And it's the sort of defining character for you. What is your intention? Like, we, we get a sense of what Clearwater's intention is. You know, some of the businesses we invest in, like cheap bone beauty products. What is the intention of that Indigenous business, which is really to uplift young Indigenous people through the visual medium and to be environmentally responsible. So we need to kind of look at the intention of the business. And when you do that, well, here comes to your point, Ed, I'm not avoiding your point here, is that the, the values and the epistemology of the business comes forward and does provide, I think, a competitive advantage to some degree. You know, not only accessing the traditional, like, Indigenous people as a marketplace or Indigenous communities as a marketplace, but even in a business-to-business context, they bring a lot of different character and quality. And one of those is, you know, we we take a, a stance, even at Raven as an Indigenous business, as we want to look seven generations. We want to look back for three generations what happened, and we want to be able to project our impact three generations forward. So that we make good decisions today about what happens for grandkids and grandkids' kids and all that. So that's this forward-thinking attitude about it. And one of the other things I think that tends to emerge is how some of these indigenous people uh, businesses are treating their people, their staff who work for them, and the intimate connection between Mother Nature, Mother Earth, and the things that the indigenous the impact that they want to leave as a business on the environment. So they're starting from that value-centric place. They don't have to be convinced to go there. They're already starting from that that spot. Just stick with you for a sec, Jeff. So at Raven Capital, when people are coming forward and putting proposals to you and they would like to access capital for their business, these things you're telling me, I guess, are, are filters, you know, in a sense as well. But let's say I'm an Indigenous person, which I'm not, and I have a, you know, good idea which will serve the whole marketplace. Mm-hmm. Is that something that, that interests you? That Bill Gates is Indigenous and comes forward with a Microsoft idea. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at least on the, what we call the screen, the first screen of the deal, we look at two things. And the first thing, we're an impact fund. So we look at the impact it's going to have on Indigenous people and on people and on the earth. The second thing that we look at, and then they're not weighted differently to start with, is what's the commercial viability of the business? And you put those things together, and we're increasingly getting more, I think, sophisticated and refined about what we mean about impact of the business. So we would look at it and go through, you know, really, you have to build a relationship with the founder or the entrepreneur and, and go down that road with them. Like, what are you actually trying to do with this business? And one of the reasons, you know, that we take a, a fairly robust approach to that screen is because for a regular business out there, there's lots of capital. For indigenous businesses out there, there is not a lot of capital. And we want to make sure that the limited capital we have is being put to good use, smart use to make that impact over time. But yeah, we, we would look at the indigenous Bill Gates and have a chat and see if it makes sense. 
Alicia, you've you've just come recently from the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, and you had a fund of uh, over a billion dollars, which I guess sounds like a lot of money, but I don't know if it. Uh, uh, you can tell me if it, if it really is. What were you trying to accomplish there? And and I know this, you know, you spent a lot of time learning and studying and becoming expert at accessing capital and creating capital and multiplying capital. Where do we have to go next? So, you know, what were you trying to accomplish and, uh, and you know, what stood in your way and, and where do we have to take this? So the priority for me in taking that role, and I think it was well set out and articulated through the mandate too, was a informed active partnerships. So having a vehicle where Indigenous communities who are interested in being part owner in, you know, certain projects, and and that mandate was quite narrow, and I know Jeff and I had a chance to sort of talk about that, you know, last week. The mandates like that don't have to be that narrow. The mandates can be more broad, but that mandate was, was more narrow. But the important part was ensuring that Indigenous communities in considering partnerships like that had access to funds to do their own due diligence, to hire their own experts, to not be relying on industry partners, to be telling them how good the deal is, because I think they've had their doors knocked down over the last three decades of instances of that. And, and really to, through the exercise of doing their own due diligence, develop a real understanding of what constitutes a good partnership. And they also then had, like in part of, part of the capacity grant dollars that were available and are available, is also to negotiate the partnership, right? So making sure that not only do they come to the table well-informed, but they also are in a position to appropriately negotiate and meet their own community's objectives. And every community is different. It depends on you know, what their priorities are. What are their values? Where do they see the gaps in potential procurement opportunities maybe for their community members in addition to community ownership? As I say, every community is different, but that program at least put the Indigenous communities in or the entities that they own in the driver's seat with respect to partnerships. There wasn't sort of this like cloud around the deal. They were able to really come to grips with what this deal meant and what the partnership would deliver. Not supplicants, but true partners and true partnership. Mm -hmm. Jeff mentioned a minute ago, Alicia, that um, he mentioned the historic difficulty of collateralizing loans and therefore having access to capital because of the communal nature of property ownership. Is that still as big a barrier as it has been historically? You know, that's interesting. And it's different for every community. So some communities are really focused on maintaining that communally owned approach and tend to discourage entrepreneurialism within the membership because the hope is to keep the wealth shared amongst everybody, you know, like that the rising tide lifts all boats, that sort of analogy. And then other communities are really open to it. So the community itself has its economic development corporation. 
It's engaged in many diverse different you know, areas. They're really interesting, interested in facilitating business acumen development and entrepreneurialism within their membership, independent of the companies that the nation itself invests in. So it's interesting. I find that there's such an array and spectrum of communities. They land all over that line. I saw Jeff put his hand up there. I agree with that. And the way that I tend to slice this issue is there is a whole bunch of capital available in the system, particularly around debt. It's a lot easier to get debt-based capital than it is equity capital, which probably make that distinction along the way. And there's a lot of capital at the big end of the system. So you're talking infrastructure projects, things that are really large in nature, where governments sort of, you know, can come in and give concessionary capital and have tools and stuff that they can use that's in their their toolkit, the bigger projects. Where the gap, I think, is is really from the medium to small size. And in in our world and why we exist is in what we call the early growth stage of innovative enterprises. So normally, uh, a business, uh, an entrepreneur would come along and say, I got this great idea for a widget, and I'm going to take a loan out and collateralize my house to get this loan so I can get this idea, do the R&D and get this idea up before I actually go raise capital, investment capital. That's the sort of thing that's a little more absent, well, it's a lot more absent in Indigenous communities. That, that capacity to that really early growth stage stuff, venture capital, and early equity into businesses. And that's where sort of the financial system needs to respond, you know, because there's this, our experiences, there's all this innovation that's that's kind of, and in particular, and I don't mean it as a plug, but more as an example, we, we did our first $25 million fund and we weren't sure. We actually went out to do 5 million. We ended up at 25. We did that fund and we weren't sure what's out there. Like really what's, what's out in the pipeline, the deal pipeline. Maybe that's not a great word, the deal flow. Next week, we're going to go and start raise on our second fund because we've distributed most of the capital. So now we can go raise a second fund. And we're targeting a $75 million fund. So three times the size that we were in three years. And we would only do that if we saw enough deal flow out there that we could place that capital responsibly and grow it. And so I think that's a sign of where people need to go and what needs to happen. Well, let's try to just be a bit more specific for one second. Can you give me an example or two of, of enterprises you've backed early growth stage, you know, that are indeed success stories and success stories because they had access to that capital? Sure. There's three off the top of my head, but we can. The first one is a firm called Animiki out of Songhees Territory and on Vancouver Island. And they are originally a sort of um, SaaS-based business, so software as a service, just to First Nations. But what they came up with, and they were a small firm. I think they maybe had eight employees two years ago. I think they're now they're at like 27 or 30-ish. And they developed a product for, they developed three products, but the one in particular we invested to support was a data sovereignty tool for First Nations so that they can easily upload and manage their own data as a First Nation, because you know how valuable and important that data is for the, the the construction of services or for investment or for whatever you want. And so they were in what I would consider a hockey stick-like growth pattern for a number of years, and they're still growing. The other one that there's two that strike me, but is Virtual Gurus, which is uh, an Indigenous woman in Alberta, lost her job at the oil field, realized a whole bunch of people 
had also lost her job in the oil patch and created a company which is a talent as a service marketplace. It matches businesses who need chunks of time as talent with talent on the ground, specifically targeting Indigenous people in remote communities and actually having a training academy to help those, what they call virtual gurus, the name of the business, you know, upskill along the way. And then they sell those services and blocks of time to businesses. You know, when we started with them, I can't remember what their monthly recurring revenue exactly was. I'd say $8,000 a month sort of thing. Now they're, you know, I think they're well over 400000 a month. a month. That's big growth in three years. You know, that's a serious, and that's, you know. Yeah, no, 50 times growth counts as big growth uh, by any measure. And, yeah, I mean, uh, there's lots of hiccups in that, but you know, it generally works. Yeah, Alicia, I want to um, I want to come back to something you were talking about at the beginning. Uh, you talked about ESG and off the top, and I wonder, you know, you know, Jeff talked about the screens and the connection to nature and Mother Earth as one of those differentiators, if you will. So, with the goal to net zero, with an ESG world with a net zero goal. Is there, again, a comparative advantage that comes out of uh, uh, Indigenous communities? Absolutely, because those principles, those new economic principles are embedded values for Indigenous communities. There's, you know, one thing that connects communities. I mean, every community is very different and they have their own values and objectives and goals and traditions. But one thing that I have seen in every community I've ever visited and with every Indigenous person that I've had a chance to talk to about, you know, resource development or, you know, engagement in the economy is this connection to land. And it's not that there isn't a desire for economic development. It's just not at all costs. Right. There's a balancing of priorities here and there needs to be sustainable development so that the future generations are taken care of. It's not just about instant gratification and serving today's population. And so they bring, like Jeff talked about with Raven Capital's view of time horizon, um, it's, you know, it's very typical for Indigenous communities to be looking out multiple generations. And in Canada, you know, we we have all heard the term seven generations. And that's an actual concept. Like that's an actual value consideration for for communities. And if you look at other communities in other nations, like the Maori, as I understand it, the Maori look out like close to 500 years. You know, yeah. so so it's a very interesting concept that you know, is not just restricted to Canadian Indigenous communities, but it's actually one that is, you know, those values are held far more broadly than that. And so when you look at sustainable development and impact on environment, partnering with an Indigenous community, there's going to be such tremendous wisdom, long-held knowledge systems around the environment and the rhythms of the environment that a corporation gets to tap into in order to really advance the concept of, you know, having a positive environmental impact. And then when you look at the treatment of communities and and the social, the S in ESG, Indigenous communities also, you know, this communal ownership, this taking care of each other, this ensuring that 
that there is success collectively as opposed to the exclusion of others and caring about employment and caring about, uh, again, future generations and the communities around them. I mean, these principles and these values are, are nothing but a comparative advantage in today's economy. Yeah, a couple of thoughts occurred to me as we were talking about this sort of comparative advantage in the value systems. Early in, in when we were just striking out with Raven, we did a series of sort of capacity building workshops, which when we had about 300 people run through them between Alberta, BC and Northwest Territories, where we were doing it at the time. These are very early stage entrepreneurs, big idea. They have the right idea. Now, how, how do we move it? And like, how, how do we do a pitch and all that sort of stuff? But we did a survey and I think 85% of the respondents, when we asked, what's the goal of your business enterprise for you? Profit was usually around number four or five. At the top usually was, you know, I want to, I want to support my community and give back. I, you know, I want to make my, you know, and I help my family and extended family. So profit came way down on the list. It's just an example of a, of a value system that's expressing itself in a bit of a different way. But what I think that that means in the practice of doing business is that when you can bring in an an indigenous business with its values uh, or an indigenous investor, I suppose with their values, what you, when that really shows up is when you have to make decisions on what to do as a business. So if you take a seven generation principle or, or, you know, the, the care for Mother Earth or even how you handle, how you deal with wealth, which is a really big issue in Indigenous communities, a different decision gets made. Oh, maybe I won't do that because that's going to hurt the environment a little bit more. And I can do better here. I can sacrifice a percentage of profits and make a different decision that has much more long-term resiliency behind it. So, anyway, just an example of how that Well, it's an interesting example, but it also makes me think, and to the extent that these different values coming together in enterprises that might be partially indigenous owned, partly non-indigenous owned, to what extent they're synergistic and to what extent they actually are cultural gaps that make decision-making you know, more difficult. You know, in every good business, there's all kinds of friction in the senior management and ownership team. And that, that kind of is a healthy thing, sort of drives innovation and inspiration as you go. And I think the coming together of two cultures, two, two different types of business cultures, perhaps, is a good thing where people can look at issues in different ways. And that's where you get sort of value creation. Oh, okay, we can look at this in a different way. We can look at this market in a different way. And we can look at what our what our mission and purpose as a business is in a different way. So I think that that friction, that is a, is a pretty good thing to have inside businesses and uh, leads to better decisions overall. Let's end up by making you look into the future a little bit. And I'm not going to ask you to look seven generations into the future, okay? I'm just going to sort of say, let's look ahead maybe 10 years. Where do you hope uh, that we would be in this conversation in 10 years? And what are the obstacles we need to get over? Well, I hope that we start to see Indigenous businesses and, and business options and business partnerships continue to I hope we see it explode. Uh, That's what I really hope for. And maybe I'll leave Jeff to get into that. I think the biggest hurdle for us 
And I'm, and I'm all about action. Execution is key. A strategy is just fun, you know, sort of creative exercise. And it's not very purposeful or meaningful until you're able to execute on it. But I do think that there is a tendency for a lot of industry players to be wanting to jump to action before understanding truth. We're having all kinds of conversations about this. I hope that in 10 years, we start to see a real understanding of the Indigenous lived experience that that becomes part of some of our most like colonial systems, right? That we start to see true, I know everybody is using the word indigenize, et cetera, but I do hope that we start to see the most colonial of our systems realize that there are other ways to think about things. There are other ways to build meaningful relationships with your employees and to improve on your ability to retain Indigenous employees. And I hope that as a society, we start to have real conversations and get a bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable about the truth of things. Because I think that foundation is going to only allow us to facilitate the breaking down of more barriers the creation of more partnerships, the ability for Indigenous peoples and communities to be active participants in the economy. The the understanding of the lived experience, I think, is really key. And that may be one of our biggest barriers if we don't get that right. Ten years out. Generally, I think prognostication is doomed to failure, but we're going to give it a shot here anyway. Ten years out. So the first thing I want to say is... I hope in 10 years, we don't have to have this conversation again, Ed, and that Indigenous business is so robust. It's it's a normative part of society that the rest of the economy says, you know, we we just need to engage and we know how now. And, you know, we'll take the lead of, of those Indigenous enterprises and really support them. I think at the end of the day, if we build out Indigenous businesses and Indigenous ownership and, and those constructs, we can build a better Canadian society. It sounds Pollyannish, perhaps, but... Most of our economic systems were created in the colonial era. You know, they stem from about the 1500s, you know, 1400s, first corporation through the 1500s, and were used really as exploitive and extractive mechanisms. And we paid the price for climate change and we paid the price for people, hence residential schools and slavery in the early days. And those are all economic-driven abnormalities. So I think the economic system can be reformulated It's a human construct and we can make it the way we choose it to be. And we should not let markets drive us and we should not let, you know, overriding uh, profits drive us. You know, this whole invisible hand, neoliberal junk, I think is is long, long gone. So my hope is that we have a very robust indigenous economy that's leading us down a path of exercising better sort of social democratic values about how we make decisions and grow businesses. And, you know, we really need to look hard at things like GDP. It's not a measure of much, by the way. Like it was created in the 1940s as part of a labor exercise in the Department, U.S. Department of Labor to get ahead around something. Well, it's not a good measure of societal happiness and growth. And, and so anyways, that would be my hope in 10 years. 
measure, Jeff, but participation has not been, you know, good enough in, you know, the system that uh, that we have. And, you know, both of you today have, you know, portrayed, I think, a much more, not just helpful future, but a future, as you said at the beginning, about sovereignty, about genuine sovereignty. I appreciate that. Uh, I don't think there's anything Pollyannish about, about what you're doing. It's very practical and pragmatic and real and on the ground. I was going to invite you back in 10 years, but I'm not going to anymore. So uh, that, uh, that, that's, that's off the table. But we'll be watching. Uh, we'll be watching, you know, very closely you know, hoping that this trend gathers uh, gathers more and more esteem because, you know, I guess from my perspective, it's, a, it's an important expression of, of reconciliation and social and economic justice. And I want to thank you both, not just for being with us today, but for the work that you're doing, you know, to push this trend forward. Yeah, thank you for having us on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that. thank you. At this point in the podcast, we like to take a moment to highlight one of our members that has gone above and beyond the call of duty in terms of an ongoing contribution to a stronger and more resilient Canada. So congratulations to start to Robert Louie, the 2022 recipient of the annual Aboriginal Business Lifetime Achievement Award, and to twin sisters Dakota and Jesse Brandt from Six Nations of the Grand River Territory as dual recipients of the 2022 Young Aboriginal Entrepreneur Award. These awards are presented by the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, a long-standing member and partner of the Public Policy Forum. We are PPF proud of our member, the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, for its commitment to the full participation of Indigenous peoples in Canada's economy. With that, that's a wrap on this edition of Policy Speaking. Thank you for tuning in. We discussed some really critical issues today. Please share the episode with a friend and feel free to leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice and let us know what you want to hear in future on Policy Speaking. I want to thank Katie Davey, the editor of PPF Media, and all her other colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast happen. I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking. Policy Speaking.